Welcome to In the Isles, the movie and TV podcast that doesn't have an OnlyFans yet. Give it time. Yep. I'm James Rothwell. I'm Dan Acton. This week, we're going to talk about what we've been watching. We'll cover some real news. And our main review is the entire Fear Street trilogy on Netflix. This this podcast, I feel, we've, we've been quite professional throughout the entire thing. Um, but we made a bit of a boo-boo last week. I was going to say through no fault of our own, but it really was. We decided we were going to review Gunpowder Milkshake. That becomes quite challenging when it's not yet released. So we were mistaken. It's been released in the US on Netflix, not in the UK. So we've had to amend that this week to the Fear Street trilogy. But a fine change, I think. There's still plenty to talk about. I'm not too disheartened. Yeah, still plenty to talk about. And we will do better in our research of what's actually released. We will do better. We're not doing a vintage review this week because we're currently in a lawsuit with Kanye West. Your version is better. I'm going to throw it out there. You've one-upped him, and he, you know, he doesn't like that. That's that's why he's filed this lawsuit. But we'll get over it. We'll get over it. Before we get down to business, James, how the devil are you, sir? Are you okay? I'm okay. I'm now double jabbed. I'm double jabbed as well. Any side effects, or was it fairly plain sailing? I didn't really feel any side effects. I went to sleep as normal. But then when I woke up in the morning, it turned out that I'd spent all my savings on buying Chinese government bonds. What? Because of the mind control from the vaccine. I bought uh, Chinese government bonds overnight without realising. Not one of the known side effects until now. No, no. So we're both double jabbed so we can safely... Speak closer into our microphones. We don't have to keep two meters away. Yeah, not yet. It takes a while to kick in, doesn't it? Okay, I'll I'll. Yeah, sit back. Sit back. <laughs> back. I'll sit back. No, come closer. Come closer. We've done this for long enough, and we've we've remained COVID free, so I think we're fine. Okay. Or have we? <laughs> Time will tell. Freedom Day is upon us, James. Do you plan on doing anything exciting? When is it? Technically today. By the time the episode is released, but in two days. Oh, um, no, no plans. I hadn't I hadn't thought about it. Um, speaking, sorry, side effects. Don't know if it is one to go back to the jab. I woke up pretty sure this is a matter of timing. But the day after my second jab, I now have a full sideburn that is grey. Um, I'm sure that's been developing for a while. But if not, I'm not happy. I don't want to develop a grey head of her at this age. It's just not. It's not the right time for me. No, or just one particular part of your hair being grey. I think that's worse. Yeah. All right. Not bad enough as it is. <sighs> right, you bummed me out. James, what have you been watching this week? Gaming changed my life on All 4, which is the Channel 4 app. I don't think this was broadcast on Channel 4 because it's only four episodes at eight minutes each. So very easy to watch. Very, very easy to watch. It's under 40 minutes, and it was very easy watch. I only realized that it was that short after I tapped the first episode. I wasn't out to find something quick to save time. It profiles four gamers, including a blind gamer who calls himself the blind gamer on YouTube, and a, a female FIFA player and, and two others. Each episode is basically, I was not happy, then I started playing games, and I found a community, and now I am happy. Very positive documentary the blind gamer episode is the best because he talks about his involvement with advocating for more accessibility options in games and they show a clip of his twitch stream of him looking at all the last of us two accessibility options and he cries because it's what he's been fighting for for so long it's interesting to watch a documentary where episodes are eight minutes long and they still manage to cover all the information you can see points where they could have stretched out to an hour by doing 20 minutes on the bullying he had in school and 20 minutes on the history of a lack of accessibility options in games and then 20 minutes on him just talking to camera. But eight minutes makes the point. There's also a female FIFA player who talks about how esports football is a male-dominated space and she's keen to change that and that's backed up by interviews with other people. In the episode about The Sims... A female gamer there, she says The Sims is a female gendered space dominated by women, but that's presented as a positive that doesn't need to change. Just something to think about. It's in the All4 app. Gaming has changed my life. 
Did it change yours? No, it didn't change my life. Okay, but still worth a watch. Yeah. I, I might watch that purely for the Last of Us Part 2 accessibility stuff, because I heard that they'd really had took that to extreme levels, but not being afflicted. I don't need to use them, but I'd be very interested to see what they've done. Like You can play it completely one-handed, can't you? And without sight or sound. Um, yeah, interesting. Very good. What else have you watched this week? Dom. The first ever Dom. D-O-M. Right, okay. Dom. That's the name of the main character. The first ever Brazilian Amazon Prime original. It's based on a true story. R as the opening text says, based on Eventos Reis. Dom is a 20-something drug addict who turns to burglaries in a gang to make money, and his father is a police officer who tries to help him on and off while also trying to fight the drug war. And there are two flashback strands. One is the young father working undercover in the early days of cocaine, being introduced to Rio de Janeiro, and the son as a boy becoming a drug addict from a very young age and going into rehab, which leads to some quite harrowing scenes. Are you following me there? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, father and son with their own set of flashbacks. The drama is just how much damage can drugs do to people's lives. It wrecks relationships and people overdose and die. And can Dom be saved from himself? There's a sins of the father thing going on because the police officer father was there when drugs were being introduced and the police didn't do a good job stopping it, obviously. And now Dom and lots of other people are not doing very well, to say the least. It's obviously shot in Brazil, so it's a fresh setting to enjoy. And the acting is good. There are moments of levity as well. It's not 100% grim. Events happen in each episode. If you miss an episode, you will have missed something. Unlike, say, Sweet Tooth, where nothing seems to happen and the pacing is very poor. So, for example, Dom gets into these heists that I've mentioned, but that only really lasts for two episodes. The series keeps moving. This has been a surprise hit for me. I'm almost finished. Very much enjoying it. It's a solid all-round Dom on Amazon Prime. There is an English dub. I was going to ask. Any appearance from Dick? No. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else? No. That's it. Daniel, what have you been watching? Very quick shout out because I just want us to blow our own trumpet and bask in our new celebrity fan glory. Um, I watched the documentary you reviewed last week, which I've forgotten the name of. Um, Ibiza? No. Sorry, go on. Hi. 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 Hello. (laughs) Hi. Confessions of an Ibiza drug mule. That's the one. Yes, I was intrigued after your review, so I thought I'll give it a go. I didn't finish it. I plan to. I've got four episodes in, and uh, we posted that we reviewed it. None other than Michaela McCollum. She only bloody liked the post, didn't she? Check it out. Ex-drug smuggler like our post. That's great. But, yeah, I really liked it. And what I thought about this, I don't know if you mentioned it. Did you not feel like they spent a hell of a lot of money on it for what it is? Yes. Yeah, it's basically... They've made a whole drama, a five-episode yeah. drama to go along with it, the dramatization. There's, there's no sound, so that will have saved them a lot of time and money, but they've, they've shot a whole drama to go along with it. And I, th- I think because it was BBC Three as well, I thought, oh, this is going to be a bit a bit tight, not going to uh, loosen the pockets too much, but they really did. And, yeah, it shows on the screen. It's very, very good and well worth watch. The other thing that I watch, which isn't something you've yet seen, is Schmigadoon. You heard of this? I've seen the title, I think. Yeah. It's an Apple TV comedy, a new one, and it's directed all six episodes by Barry Sonnenfeld. I don't know if I'm saying that right. I know him well, but I've only ever seen his name written down. He directed Men in Black, Adam's Family. Loads of other stuff. So in good hands, one would have thought. Uh, It's a musical comedy, and it's about a couple, Melissa and Josh, that are played by Cecily Strong and Keegan-Michael Key. They're in a relationship. I don't think it's they've been in it too long, four or five years or something. And already things have started to get a bit familiar and stale. So they go on a trip to reignite the passion in their relationship. Problem is, Melissa 
sees that there is something that's wrong and they need to improve upon it. Meanwhile, Josh doesn't think there's a problem at all. He's quite happy to just go on as they are, thinking everything's hunky-dory. Midway through a walk through the woods, they're arguing with one another and they discover this bridge that's surrounded in mist and they cross it and then they find themselves in this fantastical world of Schmigadoon. It's a land where the colours are unsettlingly bright. The townsfolk just plain unsettling and the musical interludes are plentiful. And as soon as they arrive in the town, they're met with this huge fanfare and all the inhabitants deliver this introductory musical number about good old Schmigadoon. Melissa's completely enraptured by the whole thing, but a boyfriend, <laughs> the funny thing is, right, you'll never have guessed, he hates musicals. And That's funny. No, That's funny. it is funny, isn't it? It's great. Uh, and he finds himself trapped in a never-ending musical. This <laughs> apparently is a is partly a parody of a musical called Brigadoon, which I have not seen. So I can't speak to how successful it is in taking the piss out of that. All I can say is that for me, it fell a bit flat. It, it's very light-hearted in tone. And I think to its credit, I, I can't say I was bored, but the delivery of some of the dialogue and the punchlines feels very try-hard. And I, d- I do feel for Keegan-Michael Key. He's one half of the comedy duo, Key and Peel, which I don't think had massive British appeal, but it was big in America. And Jordan Peel, his former partner in comedy crime, he went off and did his own thing, and now he's the heavily acclaimed director of horror films Get Out and Us. And here's Key just slumming it away in a rather average TV series. And I thought, oh, what a shame. You're never going to get to that level. He surpassed you. Uh, it did remind me in some ways of a less successful version of um, what's the Prime series where they die and they live out in the VR afterlife. I liked it and I recommended it. I think you and your Upload. That's the one. Yeah, it's similar in the fact that they're in this otherworldly place. But the difference here is that it's song-ridden. Uh, and when, when there are songs, the choreography around them is is perfectly good. It's not a snore fest, but like I said, tonally, it just feels slightly off and I'm not too sure if they've nailed it. But maybe they'll find the rhythm. Um, I just don't know if it's hooked me enough to find out whether they do. Maybe they'll find the rhythm. Genius. I remember seeing it now on, on Apple TV and, and just dismissing it immediately based on, on the premise. 88%, 94% critic and audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. But The Guardian, the UK publication giving it two stars so maybe maybe it's an american thing i see the other cast member lead cast member cecily strong she's a saturday night live former cast member so that's a huge red flag for me what else have you been watching lie with me this james is a podcast first because i'm reviewing a channel five show never thought that would happen did you no, but I know exactly what you're talking about because I almost watched it. So I'm keen to hear what you're about to say. Oh, okay. So the, I'm going to excuse myself for reviewing a Channel 5 show here. So I found out through Googling it that this was a joint production between Channel 5 and the Australian Network 10. And I've seen productions from this network before, MasterChef Australia being one of them, but there's a drama called The Secret She Keeps, which I think I reviewed on this podcast and it's available on BBC iPlayer. It's very good. So that's my excuse as to why I even entertained it. And this is, again, about a couple whose relationship is on the rocks. They emigrate to Australia in an attempt to repair the marriage. Once there, they hire a nanny. Can you can you see where this is going, possibly? Is the nanny proper fit? Yeah. You're right. Mm. Mm. And that there's already tension in the household and slowly the wife starts to suspect her husband of having an affair. The, the wife, by the way, which is the Brit factor in this, she's played by EastEnders actress Charlie Brooks. I don't know her, but she's perfectly good in this. It's a competent thriller. I was engaged throughout. It's nice to see a pretty formulaic story played out against a different backdrop with different accents, like you said about Dick and Dom. Um, and this is Australians, obviously. The one criticism I have is it shows its hand far too early, which takes the sting out of the mystery a bit because 
It's like a really fleeting, like, oh, is he having an affair? Or is the wife just paranoid? Don't worry, we'll tell you right now. Oh, but who's he having an affair with? Oh, no, don't wait. Here's the answer. It's fine. But to be fair, when I think about it in more detail, I suppose that's what makes this entertaining because rather than you being in the dark as to, you know, what's going on here with this central mystery, it's more about you are privy to both the husband and wife side of things. And instead it's about them plotting against each other. It's a bit Dr. Foster-esque in that way. I liked it. Well done, Channel 5. Um, I suppose this just goes to show, if you leave another network in charge, you can, by proxy, produce some half-decent content. Family Affairs and Life on the Farm side. Great shows. Very good. You said there that they show their hand early. Is that an amazing, subtle tease for Fear Street? It wasn't, actually, but now that I think about it. Yes, yeah, it was. So you'd recommend it on balance, Lie With Her? Lie With Me. And if you're in Australia, it's called With Intent. Okay. It'll surely, it's, yeah, well, obviously I was going to ask if it's available in Australia. Obviously it is, because for a number of reasons, it's just obvious that it is. So yeah. Neither title makes sense, by the way. Well, does well, Lie not have a double meaning? Well, yeah, but I could have thought of something better, like Dirty Nanny. <laughs> It's the real thing. It is now real, real news, news. I think we've got to the bottom of the Black Widow Iron Man cameo. There's been a recent interview with the writers and and the cast all sat behind very nice looking uh, white backgrounds. And the answer seems to be that there was an early version of the script that used footage from Civil War to establish this takes place after Civil War. So maybe there was never any plan to get our DJ Junior in to film stuff. They had it in the script. That's what got put out in 2019. And there was never, ever going to be any new new footage coming out. And this is coming from a Entertainment Weekly, by the way. So there you go. It might never have existed, the cameo. People will surely continue to speculate, though. Well, is there any more news on didn't Robert Downey Jr. unfollow all of his castmates in the last few weeks? He did. There was some high-quality clickbait articles about it saying fans panic as Robert Downey Jr. unfollows people. and He's been recast in What If series and lots of nice clickbait. Basically, his Instagram and Twitter accounts are now hubs for his philanthropic endeavours, and he's unfollowed everyone. Which he's entitled to do. Yeah, but it was was clickbaited as Robert Downey Jr. is turning his back on his Marvel core stars. So what if he was? Get a life. But there's something else interesting in this um, Entertainment Weekly article. Uh, Director Kate Shortland has also discussed her stance on having other Avengers pop up in the film, Telling Total Film, so this is Total Film via Entertainment Weekly, via me, via In the Isles podcast. Marvel head honcho Kevin Feige agreed on a decision to leave them out. Additionally, there were discussions about everything, about all the different characters, said Shotland. What we decided was, and I think Kevin was really great, he said, so this is a quote inside a quote, this is a quote from Kevin Feige. She doesn't need the boys. We didn't want it to feel like she needs support. We want her to stand alone, and she does. Apart from her sister, who steals the film from underneath her and, and is the standout star of the whole thing. But yeah, she stands alone. More Black Widow news. Have you heard how it's been doing box office-wise? I've seen some headlines, but go ahead. So as of one day ago, thanks to Variety.com, Uh, I'm informed that it's hit the $200 million mark worldwide, which is one of the best results in a post-COVID world. And what I found really interesting about this is at least $60 million of that, and I'm going off figures from nearly a week ago now because I don't think Disney has come forward with any more figures since. On its opening weekend, $60 million in Premier Access receipts. So that would indicate that, going down this model of 
a simultaneous theatre and streaming release does not mean death to cinemas. And I'm quite unsure as to how that's left me feeling because I think it's positive. People are still willing to go to the cinema, but I can foresee the more that this is adopted, the more drop-off that we'll have in cinemas because people just think, ah, what's the point? It's a novelty now because we've not been able to for so long, but I think if this becomes the new norm, I can see cinemas dying left, right and centre. But interesting, because if if it goes down this route, we're in a whole different world when it comes to how films are released going forward. I say a whole new world, it's essentially what's happened over the last 18 months, but I didn't see that continuing. So 200 million, 60 million of that is Disney plus Premier Access. Which is the first time they've released such figures, which may indicate that the likes of Mulan probably didn't do well enough for you to even mention it. No. And that is uh, 30%, which I've just worked out as you've been talking, 30% from Premier Access. Not bad at all. I'm, I'm surprised. I'm, well, it was in my top five, I think. I think it was in both of our top five, so we can't say that we are surprised. But surely, yes, I agree. Surely means that cinemas will come back and we'll get that $2 billion Avengers 7 or 8 film in a, in a few years' time. One more Black Widow related piece this is from screen rant via the screen rant youtube channel spoilers for black widow they did an interview with olga kurilenko who is taskmaster which is revealed at the end of the film it's a strange interview because for the vast majority of the film taskmaster is played by a stuntman and she clearly was only on set or possibly on a blue screen to film what she did, which was two very short scenes. And the answers that she gives, and I'll just give you some examples, are so vague that it becomes um, quite funny. Who, who what, knows if she was played by a stuntman? She, the, the stuntman posted a picture on Instagram of him in the costume. Right, you've verified. It's fine. Carry on. What drew you to the role? I was happy to get the part because the character is super cool. There's so much to it. I was thrilled to get on board and be a part of Marvel. Right, okay. Um, Marvel is known for altering the story. Were there plans in development to have a different path for the character? Oh, I wouldn't know if there was. <laughs> um, what research did you do into the role of Taskmaster? I just watched some more films. Taskmaster hasn't appeared in another film. I'd, I'd seen the Marvel films, and obviously I looked the character up. You hadn't heard of the character. Just giving that away there. It's not, we, I think we slightly mocked last time that it was not a well-known, beloved character. and all the out, There was all this outrage about being a, a female when I wouldn't say that it's a popular character. How did it feel starring alongside Black Widow? Who's Black Widow? <laughs> Taskmaster is known for her ability to mimic fighting styles. Which Avengers style do you think is most effective, both in the film and in the future? Oh, gosh, they all have such different styles. The most effective? I'm not sure. They're all pretty good. (laughs) And last one. Has there been any talks of continuing Antonio's story at all? You'll have to ask Marvel. What an interview. What an interview. Still worth mocking, though, within this new segment. So thanks for uh, gracing us with that. In other news... You reviewed the Mosquito Coast a few weeks back, didn't you? Yes, on Apple TV+. Plus. Did you see it through? Did you carry on with it? Nowhere. I didn't know that Neil Cross uh, was involved with that. And I love Neil Cross because he's responsible for Luther. If you're American, Luther. I really, really like Luther as a TV series. I was sad when it came to an end. And they keep teasing every now and again that they're going to make a film but it would seem that that's gathered some pace because now, unofficially, according to Empire Online, it has a director attached with uh, Jamie Payne. Not familiar with the name, but his credits include Outlander, another series that you very much liked, The Alienist, Doctor Who, The Hour, Call the Midwife, the list goes on. I'm very, very interested. I hope this doesn't take another five years to come to fruition, but I... Like I said, loved Luther, and I'd be very, very much excited for a film. Did you watch it, Luther? Were you a fan? To my shame, no. I'd never watched it. 
despite on it. really like really really liking Idris Elba from The Wire. You're missing out. Sort it out. We've cut our way through the news. Now let's cut our way with a knife through the slasher trilogy of the week. It's what, worse what, than what? any I've done before. Yeah. Okay. We can't do segues. It's Fear Street. Hello. I'd like to order an opinion, please. This film is new, fresh point of view. Call me sit back, this is a fact. We in the aisles, here are some aisles. Thoughts in sync, tell you what to think. I'll listen to you, but please don't rap again. This week's memory review is the entire Fear Street trilogy. There was a time when things were good on Shady Side. But now, that's all gone. Oh man, I turn the around with the skeleton hand, yeah. Hello? Still alive. Who is this? It's happening again. Sorry, I'm back! Run back Tonight is Sunnyvale versus Shadyside. Red versus blue, good versus evil. We commence a Kate Are you okay? That was nineteen seventy-eight. Five thousand nine hundred thirty-seven days ago. Shady Side, a history of horror, has earned it the nickname Killer Capital USA. It's happening, guys. These massacres happen at Shadyside over and over. You were the only person who survived. How do we end this? You have to go back to where it all started. 1666. After a series of brutal slayings, a teen and her friends take on an evil force that's plagued their notorious town for centuries. James, this is going to be a difficult one to dissect. See what it is? Yep. No. Yep. Knife. But we'll go through it by just... Cutting. Cutting up. Yep. <laughs> but we'll, we'll, we'll attempt it by just giving a very high level what were your overall, overall thoughts on part one, two, and three, and then we'll discuss the series of a whole, yeah? I'm saying that to you. You told me how we were going to do this. I'm just reciting it. Does that work for you? Yes, it works. It works. So go on, James. Not the horror fan amongst the two of us, but what did you think of Fear Street, the trilogy? Okay. Obligatory. I haven't read the books. I haven't read the books. I did read Goosebumps, though, when I was younger. Same author, R.L. Stein, Robert L. Stein. Didn't know that. I thought his name was R. That's that's news to me. Revelation. Thanks for that. It's R. It's R. L. Stein. So it's that's genre. That is, it's like Robert Lee Stein, but I said Robert L. Stein. <laughs> All right. Sorry. Uh, it's not good when you have to explain the joke. Is it? It's only because it's me. If only you had a different co-host. Eh? Part one, nineteen ninety-four. The opening scene in a neon shopping mall. And a killing that takes you to the 90s very well. The knife chase, blood, slasher film music provided by the same guy that did Scream, whose name I haven't written down. Marco Beltrami. Yes. I was well up for this after that strong opening. It proceeds after that as a completely inoffensive tribute pastiche copy of what is probably better horror films that I haven't seen or that I haven't seen for a very long time, like Scream. The plot is people are being killed. Let's find out why. Oh, it's a curse. Let's stop the curse. And alongside that is a town rivalry between Sunnyvale and Shadyside. Or is it Shadyvale and Sunnyside? The latter, I think. That rivalry is talked about constantly, but there's no evidence of the difference between them. They all seem like healthy, slim, attractive people, all doing the same things, attending the same events, all driving cars and being well-dressed. So that confused me a little bit. In part one, the main romantic couple is introduced. 28-year-old teenager Dina and 22-year-old teenager Sam, a lesbian couple that can't be together because Sam moved to the next town. Clearly, these towns can still see each other, so what's the problem? That She's continues. denouncing her sexuality, James. She, she has to be perceived as straight. 
Okay, that I didn't that didn't come across. I, I, I just thought they were not going that route. But that, if that's the case, then then fine. Uh, three times in the film, they stop everything to talk about their feelings. People are being murdered all around them, but stop. Let's repeat what we've already said to each other when some piano music blares before the next scene of killing. Uh, so that's what I felt about part one. What about you? I, I had very similar opening thoughts. The first 20 minutes, it filled me with joy. I thought for a throwback of 90s horror films, it completely captured that tone and atmosphere. And you've already mentioned it, it pays homage to things like Scream. And that opening scene is almost shot for shot Drew Barrymore's death, apart from the fact that it's in a mall in the original Scream. So I like that. It was fun. I felt they kept up the energy. The cast, largely of unknowns, or at least they were to me, they're all good in their own right. And they had some real chemistry together, which definitely doesn't hurt. Not long into the runtime, though, it blends in this more supernatural stuff and you understand that there's a bit more to it than being a direct ripoff of horror films from the past it is definitely that but it's attempting to be something a bit bigger i was filled with nostalgia in a very satisfying way from the 90s music which i've heard numerous people have complained about because apparently there's just music galore in every scene i didn't notice that if i'm honest uh, the fashion, the lava lamps, even. I thought, oh, I'm back in the 90s. And it made me feel like a teenager again to an extent. I'm not, I'm not sure if you were a fan, but I loved Nickelodeon's Are You Afraid of the Dark back in the day. And it felt very reminiscent of that. And I'm sure we'll talk about it in more detail, but it's it's quite a teenage-focused story, not just in like it's featuring teenagers, but I feel like the story itself is geared towards a teenage audience, but yet it's met with this really heavy violence and gore that I wasn't expecting. It does, towards the end, evolve into your stereotypical slasher, um, so I'm not saying it was perfect, but by the end, was I not entertained? Yes, I was. I enjoyed it a lot, and it had me intrigued as to where it was going next. James, part two for you. 1978. In a summer camp, are we going to see any summer camp activities? We're playing games, building rafts, hunting rabbits? No, it's the same again. Let's talk about our feelings in between scenes of people getting murdered. Getting murdered by who? People with motivations that will be revealed later in a shocking twist? No, they're all possessed by a curse. They don't have any individuality. They aren't choosing to be evil. They haven't even become evil as a result of their surroundings and situation. They're just possessed. Okay. I thought part two was a two-hour flashback and a waste of time. What did you think of part two? Uh, I think I know I had this review story. Uh, I can't defend this one too much. I am quite surprised by the IMDb stats on this because I think it goes in terms of popularity first, second, third, in terms of the third being the best. And this was a step down for me. It is more or less a rehash of the exact same story yet again, but set against a different backdrop and a different era. And I did think we're in trouble now because how do you do yet another slasher film without it reeking of unoriginality? Turns out you can't. This one... <laughs> obviously tries to create some Friday the 13th type vibes. And I did think it did a lot of that successfully. And the only reason that I think it doesn't fall into the trap completely of being formulaic is that it teases more of this origins of the curse that's been put on the town, and that naturally feeds into the wider narrative. I don't think the cast is anywhere near as good in the previous film, in this one, but they're still okay. Uh, it ends suitably setting up the third installment and i was still i'll be not as much i was on board but it has definitely lost a bit of steam okay i'm liking the imagine i'm imagining you on a ship where you're sort of teetering on the edge as a steam <laughs> a steamboat where you're kind of on just we're in stormy seas now and you're going to fall over the edge and say that you don't recommend it or not so part three 1666 where there's no music to fall back on and, and fill out the uh, runtime and give a, give some tone to the scenes. 
what happens? Nothing. It's, it's dead. It's deader than this year's Love Island. They don't have the slasher killer zombies because this is the origin of the curse. It's just a poor man's The Crucible with the most basic version of, oh, we're 17th century settlers and this sinful couple has brought the devil on us and they have to rush through all of that to get to the last 40 minutes back in 1994 where they fight the zombies and systemic oppression to end the curse. What did you think of part three, 1966? I, I was in very stormy seas at this point because I I was so put off. I hate things set in this time period. It's it's really not my thing. I've mentioned it with Westerns and, and such. I, I'll go out of my way to avoid this. I just, I don't like the costumes. I don't like the surroundings. It's too bleak and it's visually unappealing. To add to my hatred of that, they are, I think, presenting this historical version of Shadyside as being inhabited by a bunch of Irish settlers, which results in some of the most bizarre, questionable accents I've ever heard. And that's even after Daniel Craig and Ray Winston last week. So early on, I thought, oh, my God, they've stuffed it all up. That light goodwill that they'd built up in the first two films was for absolutely nothing. Then as the story progressed, we see the true mystery of the town's evil revealed. And I did, and I think this was more me wanting to like it. I did have a sense of admiration for what they were trying to achieve and the level to which it somewhat worked. There is, for me, what I felt was a nice parallel with a storyline from the first film centered around forbidden love, shall we say, that you referred to. And I thought it weaved that in quite well uh, and it made complete sense. Overall, it isn't a flawless film. My God, is it not a flawless film? Some things just don't work at all, but I did feel that ultimately, again, there's, there's some shortcuts and a bit of laziness and convenience, but it ties the story together in a somewhat satisfying way. Okay. You mentioned the music. Um, just want to pick up very quickly on that one. There's lots and lots of music, lots and lots and lots of music, 90s and 70s music. But I don't think there's an, enough other details going in to make it feel nostalgic. So something like physical on Apple TV or Pen15, which was set in the 2000s, they evoked the, the time so well, especially Pen15. That was like, yes, you've got it exactly. You've got the AOL sign-in sound and you've got an Austin 316 poster on the wall and the fashion is there. This just has the music, but I don't think they get it quite right. So one of the four songs that plays in the last 10 minutes of part three is Live Forever by Oasis, which just didn't make any sense to me because this is set in America in the 90s and Live Forever is only the third single by Oasis that was released before their debut album. And Oasis never broke into America, if you remember. They tried, but then like re retreated from, from the beaches of America, and it never happened. So I'm not convinced that these teenagers would be listening to Oasis Live Forever. And it was very, very jarring to have that at the end. And that just showed a little bit of laziness, dare I say, in 90s music, or we like Oasis, just put Oasis on. That that fits. It doesn't really fit the setting that you've got. And they also put on The Man Who Sold the World by David Bowie from 1971. I don't think 1978 kids at a summer camp will be listening to David Bowie from 1971. Fair, fair enough. I, I was willing to cut it a bit of slack in thinking maybe that's a bit of pandering on their part, going, well, we know we're going to have a UK audience, they probably can't speak to being an American high school student very much. This is a nice way of just slotting that in and them having a bit of familiarity and going, oh, yeah, where's his 90s? Yes, get it. Netflix has a Japanese audience as well. So where's Maria Takeuchi? <laughs> Don't get the reference, but I think what you're saying still stands. Um, yeah, there was, there was nothing in there. But I, I can understand the, the cynicism, definitely. Something else that isn't clear that you've touched on is the audience for this and, and the cast so this is rated 18 there's a lot of swearing again i'm not a prude but there's unnecessary levels of, of swearing i think like even people that swear don't swear this much it's all over the fucking show and that makes me wonder 
who is this aimed at? You've said that it's like a teen thing and it's a teen audience, but it is rated 18 and it was originally going to be released in the cinema. So maybe it would have had an 18 rating there as well. The cast are obviously all not teenagers. Like there's some nudity and, and sex in it, but they're playing teenagers, but it's got an adult rating and all the children are getting murdered and, and murdering each other. And like tonally, it is very light and fluffy. There's a lot of music. Which made me think, oh, maybe this isn't like aimed, aimed at me. It's more like a neon, colory, light-hearted pastiche. I, I was just a bit confused with the tone and the audience. Yeah, I, I think it is purposeful. I think it's trying to rely on people's nostalgia from the 90s. If you were, maybe if we'd read the books, this would speak a bit more to us and we'd be like, oh my God, this is exactly what I wanted but I've actually got my adult fix alongside it as well. It's the book realised, but with, you know, me at a different age and thinking I can still appreciate this sort of thing because it's been elevated to that adult level. It didn't work for me on that level because I haven't read the book, but at the same time, I was like, I suppose what I said before with that, are you afraid in the dark type vibe? I got a sense of being a teenager again and stumbling across something that speaks to me as a teenager. At the same time, I know that I shouldn't really be watching it because I'm too young for it. Obviously, I'm not. I'm 35, but I'm saying it it, it captured that magic for me to a degree. I think that's what it's trying to do. Yeah, I think that's. I think you've summed it up well there. Yeah. So, do do you think that it's 18 rated, but it's actually aimed at under 18 sneakily watching it? Yes, I do. I think that's exactly what yeah. it's meant for. Yeah. Look, there's a boob through a window. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so just on this point of the influences, it's it's not being denied, and I, and I don't think it's it's a edgy thing thing to point out. So the director Lee Janiak, who is the wife of one of the executive producers, Duffer Brothers, of Stranger Things. Oh my god! I said, I said that in, so the, in, much in the worst way possible. So the Duffer Brothers, who are the makers of Stranger Things, the director of Fear Street is one of the brother's wives. Again, I've said that in the worst way possible, but I think you get what I'm saying. <laughs> However, I you see, I looked that up, right? I saw that um, the director of this was married to the Stranger Things guys, one of them. And I thought, well, that's, that's, that's that then. Like Netflix have just given this trilogy to the wife of the producer of one of their top shows. But that's actually not the case. This was going to be released in cinemas. It had nothing to do with Netflix. All right. Okay, good. And like Netflix have bought it after it's been made. And it was to do with like a 20th century Fox deal with the production company expiring. So it's just a complete coincidence. It's not nepotism. It, it does make a few things click into place though, because I was going to say the climax of part three is very, very similar to some of what plays out in the third season of Stranger Things in the mall. Like really, really similar setup. Um, so yeah, she's she's obviously said, Oh, can I uh, can I just do the ending of season three of Stranger Things again? Is that right? Yeah, people don't need to know we're together, it's fine. No one will draw the uh, draw up the dots, <laughs> not a problem. Yeah, and this director has only directed one other film before this and a few TV shows, including two episodes of the Scream TV show. So you, you can there's an obvious link there if you see the experience in the genre. Anyway, interview with the director where she comes out and says the list of influences, which should be clear, but I'll just go through them. 94 is Scream and I know what we did last summer and The Faculty. 1978, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, The Goonies. And 1666, The Witch, The Village, The Crucible. So it's no secret that this is it's a homage to various things mm. but i'm not sure if it's anything else at all beyond that <laughs> you look at something like indiana jones say that was originally thought of as a james bond inspired thing but that is its own thing clearly uh but fear street is, is not its own thing it's completely attached to the things that it's paying tribute to yeah it, it is a cauldron that's filled with every horror film before it 
basically, and not not an ounce of originality, really, just drawing from everything else. <laughs> but I, I like bits of that. I think it was it was fun to an extent. And I I thought it was pretty audacious to do this release structure as well. So you're going to release three films in three weeks. You're going to film them all in advance. What's to say the first one just doesn't die on its ass? They must have had some confidence going in that they were going to speak to some sort of audience. But what 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 do you think about this release structure? Do you think it's interesting? Do you want more of the same? Would you rather not see it again? It's like event television, but for films, isn't it? Yeah, I think this might be the first time Netflix has, has done it. I think that's fair to say. Yeah, I think it is, yeah. I think it's it's been good. I mean, I have watched all three in one week, but event television going week by week is something that's coming back in streaming like with Mandalorian and all the Marvel shows. So I think it's good. I think it's good. If I did care enough to watch them week by week, it would have been fun to get involved for that little week and know what's going to happen next and then look forward to it and watch it. Mm. I'm not going to uh, claim that these are my own thoughts. I think I've... I say I think I've heard it because I'm not too sure if I have, but sure someone said that this is Netflix trying to stay relevant for more than a week. That's the purpose of this. So it's not just, as we've spoke about before, you release something, five minutes, people are talking about it, and then it's over with and forgotten about. This is their attempt to just stay in the news for three weeks with this sort of trilogy and what I find laughable about it is, yeah, it's worked for three weeks, but then we're all going to forget about it. <laughs> yeah, you've bought yourself two extra weeks. <laughs> and I think, wasn't there a thing with Netflix saying that they will release a, like a, a notable film every week? And recently I've been thinking, where are these films? And this is, they've, they've got themselves three weeks here in the bag. Yeah. <laughs> oh. That's that's it. That's all I had to say. But shall we get to whether we'd recommend this trilogy or not? Yes. Daniel, would you recommend Fear Street Trilogy? <sighs> part one, yes. Part two, no. Part three, the last 40 minutes, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> As a whole, I really don't know. Um, I'm going to go with... If you're a diehard horror fan, there are things in here that you will appreciate. One thing that we didn't say in the main review, they all needed shaving 30 minutes off. And then I think I probably would have recommended it as a whole, because what is there to lose? James, what about you? It's a simple question, really. Would I suggest to someone that they watch this? The answer is no. Fair enough. You've just made me feel very bad about how convoluted my answer was, but fair enough. <laughs> okay. Shall we go into spoilers? Bruce Willis. Real name is Tyler Durden. Sank at the end. Oh, thanks a lot. Spoilers. So it's a slasher film with cursed, possessed people. And it's revealed that an evil man is behind it all. There is a 400-year lineage of like satanic mages who curse things underground. And every once in a while, they write down someone's name that person becomes possessed and then kills people. But this is where I'm confused because it's the, it's, the, it's the evil man that is doing the cursing, but wasn't the curse coming from beyond the grave from the girl in 1666 who was hanged? No, it was believed to be that. That's where everything, everyone had got shit twisted. They thought it was this supposed witch. But right. it wasn't it at all originated from the good family. Okay. That's Evil why it was so good. tragic that her name had been dragged through the mud for all these hundreds of years. Right, okay. So when the girl is being hanged and she is like saying, I curse you, I curse you, that actually had no effect. That, that was I'd that forgotten was about that. So that's so that's fake. But basically that what you're saying makes sense. So, so that, that was fake news. I think her, so. her doing the curse. Okay. So this alleged curse already existed because it was the man doing it. I'll, I'll accept that. That's fine. So yeah, the evil man started the the sorcery, and it was actually that the this this violence was being caused by possessed people, caused by the patriarchy. Quite similar to Black Widow, I think. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, just something, just something to think about. And the reason for the curse is that the good family, they're on the Sunny Vale side, and these curses benefit the good family, and it benefits Sunny Vale and Shady side, which is where the main characters are from. They are oppressed, and things are not good in Shady side. Yeah. Because of this this curse, I wasn't really sure how that worked. So was was Sunnyvale receiving like economic and social benefits as a whole, or was it just the good family, or like how how was the shady side town? Like what was bad about being there? I didn't get that. It, it's quite lazily shoved in. To be fair, it doesn't really present any of that on screen. I don't think. I suppose you meant to see it through the first film when you have the standoff between the two schools and I think from memory one of them they've got all the high school uniforms and jackets and they're quite pristine and they've got an identity whereas Shady Vale I don't believe they did um, but that that's not really a lot to that <laughs> um, and it doesn't really explore it in any more detail also really on the nose Sunny Side and Shady Vale I'm sure that's the names in the book but i thought come on yeah i didn't i think it i at first i thought it was it was just a town rivalry but then if you read interviews there's this there are themes of systemic oppression going on here and do we assume that the main characters are being oppressed because of what what they look like Mm. and that that town is is i don't know um it it just didn't come across really. If you're gonna do that, then do it and like let's 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 put that in there. No. And it could be interesting. But instead, maybe we're just meant to assume things based on the actors they've chosen to play the roles. I d I don't know. Uh, um, I think we're meant everyone to... seems to be doing quite well. Like Dina, the main character, like she's got a nice house. She's got a nice big house that she lives in with her brother. Um she makes him brownies with honey on. She has to, has to walk quite a distance from the kitchen to the living room on the TV that he's watching in a big living room. So it, it didn't, I didn't understand this idea of, oh, now that we've killed this guy, Shady Side can, can rise up to its like potential. It's not, it's not a slum. You'd think they talk about it as though, oh, we're living in the slum, but Sunnyvale is all pristine. It just, yeah, I didn't get it. Maybe it's leaning more on the bad fortune of the town rather than the people and their lives itself because there's so much murder and tragedy in that town in comparison to the quite fortunate Sunnyside, which seemingly is prim and proper and, and no crime occurs. And obviously, I assume you'll probably get quite a bit of notoriety if all of your townspeople are known for murdering each other. Maybe that's it. But I, I do agree with you. I don't think it's very well thought out it literally relies on three lines of dialogue to paint this picture which is not sufficient yeah again i think you've explained it to me there yeah that that makes sense what you're saying that this town is just known for the place where people get killed so it's got a bad reputation so people don't go there i get that makes sense that's fine but i think there's a suggestion in the talk around it that there's something more going on but i just don't see it is is not as well fleshed out as i believe it would like to think it is can I just pick up on one thing from part three specifically? So she is transported back, the main character, Dina, the 28-year-old teenager, she's transported back into the past. Was she not panicking that she was stuck in the past? Did she know who she was in the past? Or was she just living out the past as it was? Or was she influencing the events? Was it was it like did she know that she was inside of a memory? I didn't actually understand what was happening with that. I think she was just living out this flashback through her body, but was not conscious of her own existence. She okay. was being used as a vessel. Right. So three hundred years ago, this original was it Lisa Fear. She oh, she Sarah was attracted. Fear. Sarah Fear. She was attracted to the same, like the same girl. But it's not the same girl, is it? So that she was attracted to the to the ancestor of the same girl. I don't think it was her ancestor. This is the thing the I don't get. Everyone's were they all ancestors? Because it was the same cast. Was that not was that not what was happening? I just thought they'd run out of budget and use the same cast. Obviously, there are tie-ins because in terms of that ancestry, I took it to mean that the rest of the people are not versions of themselves they are just playing completely different characters but i might be wrong and 
you're right. So I, I don't know what to say about that. I don't, it I don't know. It would make more mm. sense, actually, if it was what you're saying. Because one of them explicitly is an ancestor. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that is the case. I'm just saying it was not clear at all. The Stranger Things light climax of the film, as is evident with a lot of films we've re- reviewed recently, I kind of lost a bit of interest, um, even though I've just said the last 40 minutes would make me half recommend it, so I don't know what I'm talking about. But I wasn't as bought in, and I think it does start to fall apart a bit, like the blood that they're shooting at them, the fluorescent signs, why are they drawn to it? Is that explained? Why would they all pounce on this Sheriff Good if they knew that he was kind of the master of them all? None of it really made sense to me. I don't know if you felt the same. It just was all a bit convenient. Sheriff Good needed some of those pheromones that Ray Winston had in Black Widow to <laughs> stop him being attacked. Yeah, I wasn't, to be honest, no, I wasn't following it either, which is a shame because despite everything, those main characters, the main character, Dina, Gillian Jacobs from Invincible and Community and the others, I thought they were a nice crew. They were all likable characters. Again, all very young and attractive, even though they complain about how terrible the lives are. I didn't get what was going on. Did you notice the really just lazy bit of, I don't know whether it's directing or writing or what, so... Gillian Jacobs pulls the bucket of fluorescent blood onto Sheriff Good, and she slowly walks away with her back to him. And then, about three shots later, Sheriff Good grabs her from behind and smears the blood on her and says, oh, I've got her, I'm going to kill her now. And the way it's done is that she is just walking away slowly with her back turned, which you wouldn't do really, would you? No. It's very lazy. And lost a bit of uh, credibility for mm. me. That she's she's pours the blood on him and then doesn't run away, doesn't retreat to the secure position with the others. I'm just going to turn my back on this guy that I've not restrained. I'll just turn my back. Yes, yeah, it's, it's not what you do, is it? Just on her character, by the way, did it make any sense to you as to why she assumed her sister's identity? Because to me, it did not. No, and I didn't even realise that the assumption of the identity had even happened. Is that why it was presented as a twist, that it was that she was Izzy at the end of part two? Yeah. Because I thought, okay, because I thought, well, it's obviously her. Why is this a twist? Mm. It's It's clearly her. Did you stick it through for the interspliced scene that plays out in the end credits? The scene where the hand takes the book away, or is yes. there another one? No, that's scene. the one. That's the one. Okay, right, yeah. It's just another shitty excuse to set up another three films, isn't it? Yeah. It's done nothing. There's nothing substantial there at all. Nothing. Someone's took a book and it's vague enough for us to just spin up a whole new story. It is, yeah. It's like it's like it reminded me of the end of Masters of the Universe where Skeletor pops back up out of the pool and lava and says, I'm I'm not dead. Right, just cheer it cheap. I will have nothing bad said against that film. That's a childhood favourite. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I agree. I agree. I love it as well. Petrifying that. Do you not think in hindsight when you go back and watch it now, if you think what age we were watching that, it's a pretty scary film. It is, yeah. There, there is a, a scene in, in the children's film, Masters of the Universe, where He-Man is stripped and, and whipped like Jesus by the Romans, he's like fully like whipped in the back. It's pretty gruesome. There's no blood, but still. No doubt Mel Gibson definitely took some pointers from that for Passion of the Christ. Yeah. I assume you're going to be watching Masters of the Universe Revelations then on Netflix. Live action? No, cartoon. No. 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 We've, we've forgotten already that we've even watched Fear Street. That's how... <laughs> <laughs> That's where we're at with Fear Street. Let this be a lesson to us both, James, because if we pick a film to review next week that isn't out, God only knows we might end up having to sacrifice six hours of our time just to come up with some content. We can't let this happen again. No, we can't. I started this podcast with you because I think I even said, oh my God, we'll get to watch things that we wouldn't ordinarily watch. It's going to be a great journey. And instead, we subject ourselves to things that we knowingly know are shit. (laughs) 
Well, next week's main review is further evidence that Hollywood does not have an original bone left in its body as we review a film that's been adapted from a VR video game that nobody played. It's Werewolves Within, which is out in cinemas on Monday. Starring my new favourite person, Sam Richardson. Can he hold that title, though? Or will he go down in a... What's the phrase? Not not even a, a blaze of glory, just a blaze of bad unfunny lines well we will surely see thank you very much for listening if you wish to support this podcast you can do so by leaving us a five star review and rating on iTunes which some people have done this week but not in the UK come on UK listeners get your fingertips out and type stuff if you want to follow us on Instagram again you can do at in the Isles podcast and you can leave us feedback at in the Isles podcast at gmail.com From now until next week, go and spend six hours of your week watching Fear Street. Not goodbye. Should they? Should they? No, I don't know.